flesh. It refers to the conception and birth of a sentient being who is the material manifestation of an entity, God, spiritual or universal force, whose original nature is immaterial. So you can see that's a broader definition than we would have in Scripture. Most religious traditions reject the idea of an incarnation. I gathered some information from Internet sources, and you know that's always accurate. So if there are any, if anything doesn't seem to be quite accurate, you know, studied some of these things. But For example, in the Baha'i faith, God is not seen to be incarnated into this world and is not seen to be part of creation as he cannot be divided and does not descend to the condition of his creatures. The manifestations of God are also not seen as an incarnation of God, but are instead understood to be like a perfect mirror reflecting the attributes of God onto this material world. And, uh, you know, for the Baha'is, they recognize all the historical religious figures that are famous in the world and give them all equal value uh, as manifestations of God. But, of course, Jesus is not the major one. major one is Baha'i, who came, Baha'i who came in more recent times. You know. And so they probably are the original coexist group, except, you know, they didn't invent the bumper sticker. But, you know, everything's good. Everybody's good and so forth. So they don't believe in uh, incarnation. Buddhism, that's a non-theistic religion. It denies the concept of a creator deity or any incarnation of a creator deity. However, Buddhism does teach the rebirth doctrine and asserts that living beings are reborn endlessly, reincarnating as divas or gods, demigods, human beings, animals, hungry ghosts, or hellish beings in a cycle of samsara that stops only for those who reach nirvana or nibbana. In Tibetan Buddhism, an enlightened spiritual teacher who is a lama, I thought that was an animal carrying that stuff, but he's believed to reincarnate and he's called a tolku. You're probably familiar with the Dalai Lama. He's the latest reincarnation of the, the the big Lama. So there's this rebirth doctrine that that living beings are reborn, but there is no deity in particular, creator deity, so he can't be incarnated. I thought it was interesting that this year tacked on to Congress's end of the year spending bill was legislation supporting Tibetans' right to choose a successor to their spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama. The Chinese government denounced the measure accusing the U.S. of meddling in its internal affairs because now they control Tibet. Yeah. And so they don't, you know, Dalai Lama's been on the run for a while, just traveling around. Well, this is a political gesture. It's not primarily religious. But what business we have supporting the concept of a God reincarnated as a man while denying the true incarnation of the Son of God that's a mystery for the Congress to address, but I'm sure they will not. Where's the line in the spending bill recognizing Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? At one time, this was the position of those in our federal government, the majority of them. 
but sadly no more. Although there are still some within this government who still maintain this doctrine, but we live in a pagan culture with a pagan government in which all religious traditions are equal and they're equally untrue. None of them are true. But some are more equal than others, particularly those that deny the truth and especially those that relentlessly seek to destroy the truth. That's Buddhism. In Hinduism, reincarnation refers to its rebirth doctrine, similar to Buddhism, and it's in its theistic traditions to Avatar. You've seen the movie. Avatar literally means descent, a light, to make one's appearance, and refers to the embodiment of the essence of a superhuman being or a deity in another form. Note that this is a spiritual being appearing in human form, not being born as a human being. In, Hind in Hinduism, actually, everybody is a god, and we're merely ignorant of that fact. If only we would realize you know, that we're really God. So when we speak of the incarnation of Christ, we're speaking of God, the Son, becoming a man, not just appearing as a man or appearing in human form, which we do see a number of times in the Old Testament. We see him appearing in human form. And we see even angels appearing in, in human form. Uh, Hebrews 13.2 says, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now some have unwittingly entertained angels and then later on realized it was an angel. right? But while they entertained them, they were unwitting about it. But I'm sure there are those who have unwittingly entertained angels and never realized it even after the event was over. A reincarnation is the false doctrine, sometimes called the migration of souls, that a person after death is born into a new body. This can be, you know, in, in the West, the enlightened areas, this is only, you're only reborn as a human being. You know. But uh, in the original teaching, you could be reborn as a human, an animal, probably a vegetable or a mineral, you know. Even rocks have, you know, rocks are God, right? And you just keep coming back until you get it right, you know, which is kind of hopeless because there's this thing called karma. And, you know, whatever you do bad in this life, you have to have come back and have that done to you in the next life and whatever you good, you know, and so you can slowly advance if you do more good than bad. And eventually after billions and billions of years, you give up <laughs> because it can't be done. Hebrews 9.27, of course, says uh, it's appointed a man wants to die after this to judgment. There is no reincarnation. Um, there is a minor hillbilly sect of Hinduism, and they believe in something called reincarnation. <laughs> then there's Islam. Islam completely rejects the doctrine of the incarnation of God in any form, and as the concept is, the concept of it is defined as shirk, which means sin. In Islam, God is one and neither begets nor is begotten. Well, this should tell us that the God of Islam is not the God of the Bible, as many people seek to portray it. And the Jesus of Islam is not the Jesus of the Bible, because the Jesus of Islam is not the Son of God. He's just another Islamic prophet and he's actually inferior to Muhammad when Muhammad returns this 
Uh, is it Isis? I don't remember how it said. Yeah. And so he be, he will be the lieutenant of Muhammad when he returns. He'll be against Christians. He'll you know because Christianity has to be destroyed. Christians have, Christians and Jews have to be destroyed. So. Uh, in Islam, they redefine all biblical history and characters as Islamic. Moses, Moses was a Muslim. Abraham was a Muslim, and so forth. You know. And then, of course, there's mainstream Judaism. It totally rejects any doctrine of an incarnation of God, and absolutely rejects any concept of an incarnation of God in any form. However, some Hasidim believe in a somewhat similar concept. This is the ultra-Orthodox Jews. Menachem Mendel Schneerson, you may have heard of. He was a, uh, he's been gone for a while now, but he was a prominent Hasidic leader in New York. And many, many Jews around the world believe that he was the Messiah. He said that the Rebbe, uh, which is similar to a rabbi, is God, is God, this Rebbe is God's essence itself put into a body of a tzaddik or a righteous person. And many people thought that this was who he was, you know. Um, actually, some are still expecting him to come back, you know, and be raised from the dead. However, Messianic Judaism, of course, does believe in the incarnation of Yahweh as human, yet not ceasing to be our creator God. The same thing that the scriptures teach. And the first Messianic Jews were known simply as the church. But the scriptures do teach the incarnation of God in human flesh. That is, becoming a man, not merely appearing to be so. And we're going to look at familiar verses. I mean, this is the same with, with Christmas messages. You're, you know, you've only got so many. And so um, we'll be looking at extremely familiar passages, but I'd like for us to think of them anew. It's easy to turn our minds off when we come to familiar verses. And not really think about them. We can go think about lunch and, you know, whatever we want. <laughs> and so John 1, verses 1 through 4, tells us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Actually, in the Hebrew order, it's God was the Word. Or I mean in the Greek order, sorry. And then it says, He was in the beginning with God. So this Word was with God in the beginning, and he was God. So you've got two and one. <laughs> we know, of course, as we see from later things, that there are three in one. But here we have two and one. And people will say, well, which beginning are you talking about? It doesn't matter. Whatever beginning you want to point to, he was already there, and he was with God, and he was God. And then it says, all things were made through him. So this one who is the word with God is a creator. Without him, nothing was made that was made. He created everything. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 14, we read, the word became flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 1, uh, John 1, 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He's revealed Him. He's shown Him forth. 
you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Because he is, well, we'll see some other things about him, things that are, he's called. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, Isaiah 17 has echoes of Genesis 3.15 because Genesis 3.15, that first, what is a proto-evangelism they call it, uh, the first evangelical <laughs> evangelism is uh, spoken to Satan. He says, you know, your seed is going to have enmity with the woman and her seed. Uh, he, you will bruise his heel. He, sh- he shall crush your head. And so we find the seed of woman being spoken of there. And then Isaiah seven fourteen, we get the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The Hebrew word for virgin is often spoken of as, you know, it's denigrated and say, well, it just means a young woman. And it could have different meanings, but uh, it's clearly speaking of a virgin and it's designated so in the New Testament. The New Testament uses a Greek word which only means virgin in quoting this scripture. And when the uh, Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, they used that particular word as well, which means only means a virgin. So we're talking about a miraculous birth here. Somebody born as Emmanuel. I ran across a new book as I was studying or an advertisement for a new book, and it was explaining how Jews and Christians understand these passages differently as though either view is acceptable. You know, well, Christians understand this to be Jesus and born of a virgin, and, and you know, Jews who don't believe in Jesus don't believe this. You know, I don't believe that this is the way it is. Do these things apply to Jesus? That's the question. In Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, when Jesus is walking and speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was necessary for Jesus to be virgin born so that he would not be tainted by the sin of Adam. It was necessary that God the Father be his direct progenitor so that he would not be a mere man. A modern objection to the teaching of the virgin birth seeks to turn it into a myth, claiming that the doctrine was a common one in the ancient world and that the New Testament simply copied it from other religions. So it's just another pagan myth. But we'll look at a few of these examples, but none of these examples cited are valid. Um, I coined a couple of new terms while I was studying this week. Other people may have had them before, but um, if you have a myth and it's wrong, you know, you're myth taken. (laughs) And these people are, you know, we're called... Many times, science deniers because we believe what the scriptures teach. These people are Bible deniers. Let's start, you know, using the term what what it really means. Science, as we know, it can only be based on human experience, but God trumps man's science. I like science. 
Many discoveries have made life easier, and I like an easier life. But it's taken huge wrong turns in modern times with evolution, materialism, and atheism, gender fluidity, and I'm sure you can add other thoughts and ideas to that. But I collected, again, some of this from the Internet, one particular article by Kevin DeYoung, who was talking about some of these um, myths that are supposedly precursors to the virgin birth, and you know, they go in you know, all the way into the death, resurrection, and so forth. And again, as I quote people, I'll remind you that I'm not endorsing uh, everything that they teach or say because most everybody, I don't know everything they teach or say. So that would be bad. Kevin DeYoung says, um, there are those who say, well, Mithraism had a virgin birth. Christianity had a virgin birth. They're all just fables. Even Star Wars has a virgin birth. This popular argument sounds plausible at first glance, but there are a number of problems with it. First, the assumption that there was a prototypical God-man who had certain titles, did certain miracles, was born of a virgin, saved his people, and then got resurrected is not well-founded. That's, that's a very mild statement. In fact, no such prototypical hero existed before the rise of Christianity. Secondly, it would have been unthinkable for a Jewish sect, which is what Christianity was initially, to try to win new converts by adding pagan elements to their gospel story. I suppose a good Jew might make up a story to fit the Old Testament, but to mix in bits of paganism would have been anathema to most Jews. In fact, Judaism at the time of Jesus did not incorporate any idolatry or any pagan myths. The main error was a self-righteousness born of law-keeping. Then the supposed virgin birth parallels are not convincing. Here are some of the usual suspects. The first is Alexander the Great. Now, he was definitely before Jesus, right? His most reliable ancient biographer several centuries after his death makes no mention of a virgin birth. Besides the story that began to circulate after the rise of Christianity, after the rise of Christianity, is about an unusual conception, not a virgin birth. Alexander's parents were already married when he was born, so you can't, you know, you wouldn't have a virgin birth in that case. You know, myths often grow up around famous religious or leadership figures. For example, George Washington. You know, we know about him tossing the a silver dollar across the Potomac. No. Well, there weren't any silver dollars when George Washington lived. And so people say, well, he threw it across this smaller thing, you know, only 250 feet. That's pretty good toss. Or, you know, chopping down the cherry tree with his father's axe. You know, these are, these are things we know to be myths, to be untrue. Now, if somebody were to come along and say, well, George Washington was raised from the dead, you know, and he did this and he did that. Everybody would know, well, that's not true. It would be disproven that the, the uh, accounts of the resurrection at the time of Jesus, there were people around that saw the crucifixion, that, that knew all about it. They could debunk it. Is, is the body available? The Romans knew where it was if it was available. They didn't bring it forth. So there are these, these myths that will grow up around famous leadership uh, 
figures, and then there are some truths about our leaders we would prefer not to know. But many ancient leaders love to be considered gods. This is nothing, nothing similar to New Testament teaching. Another uh, person that's cited is Dionysius. And like so many of the pagan parallels, he was born when a god, in this case Zeus, disguised himself as a human and impregnated a human princess. This is not a virgin birth. And it's not like the Holy Spirit's role we read about in the Gospels. It's really closer to Mormonism's version of Jesus' conception. They say that God the Father had intercourse with Mary. So this is a modern pagan myth, not truth. And they are myth-taken in this. There's Mithra, which he introduced at the beginning, a popular parallel. But Mithra was born of a rock, not a virgin. Moreover, the cult of Mithra in the Roman Empire dates to after the time of Christ. So any dependence is, myth on, is Mithraism on Christianity and not the other way around. Another popular god figure is Horus, who is the ancient Egyptian god. And they made up all these stories around him. The stories were made up by a Bible denier in the 1800s or 1900s, somewhere in that kind. They never existed before that time, so they're not true. These are lies told by Bible deniers, inspired by the father of lies himself. And men who believe these lies and trust in them will be separated from the truth forever. There's Buddha. His mother dreamed that Buddha entered her in a form of a white elephant. Made me think of the white elephant sails, you know. Does that mean he was a used soul? But this story doesn't appear until five centuries after his death, and she was already married. In short, the so-called parallels always occur well after the life in question, well into the Christian era, and are not really stories of virginal conception. And you can you can see the strategy of the enemy in this, you know. He, he doesn't care about the truth. He's going to make it up, and, and uh, he'll lie about it, and then people believe it, and he can keep them from being aware of and believing the truth about Jesus. So in evaluating such claims, we want to remember that the devil is a liar, and he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, according to John 10.10. 10. Jesus came that we could have life and have it more abundantly. And so there are many that repeat his lies to their own and others' destruction. Don't be deceived. Only in God's truth is there salvation. A famous uh, passage, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know, this, uh, we've, we've heard this uh, song from Handel's Messiah and, and uh, you know, the Hallelujah Chorus and so forth and this year, for the first time, we actually, you know, I, was, I read a blog article about Handel and about his life and then about the writing of his Messiah. And he'd actually gotten to the point where um, he was poor, he was destitute, and he thought, you know, his life was pretty much over. And he got invited to um, conduct one of his operas in somewhere in Scotland, I believe it was. And... 
So he decided at this time that he would write a new oratorial. Is that how you say that? Anyway, a new thing, musical. And, you know, it was a big hit, of course. And um, so after reading that, I thought, well, I've never really listened to or seen this Handel's Messiah thing, you know. So uh, we looked it up, and there were a few versions out there. So we watched one that was conducted by, I can't remember or even know his first name. It, it was listed there, but uh, conductor was Suzuki. And the myth is that he rode around on a, his motorcycle and, I just made that one. I made up that myth. <laughs> one tarnation. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, when I read this now, I just hear the music in my head. For unto, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting the Prince. Yeah. So, of the increase, and pardon? It was like a month and 45 days. Yes, yeah, it was like 28, 28 days that he wrote. He wrote, and and he was he hardly slept or ate. He just and uh, when it was first played, some government, or well, really, king or duke or somebody was there. Charlotte may remember more. Pardon? Possibly it was it was at, during the Hallelujah chorus when that concluded that he stood up, you know, and then everybody else stood up because if the guy stands up, you got to stand up. Um, so he stood, and and since the, ever since then, the tradition has been that people stand, you know, at that point. But if you get a chance to see that, um, or you know, another version of it, it's really, and I'm not. That's not really my kind of music, you know, as far as musical presentation. But I'll probably watch it a lot more, a lot more often. They had these, they had a choir, and then they had these four soloists that would do different parts, you know. So, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judge, judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we find the incarnation. We find his kingdom, which will take place, you know, in his second coming. So this biblical doctrine of the incarnation, then, is the doctrine that the Son of God, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human form by conception and birth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and is completely both God and man. This is referred to theologically as the hypostatic union. Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man. He's fully God and fully man. One person, not two, nor two halves stuck together. He is our kin as human, and he's God's kin as deity. And so he's that. he's the one who bridges that gap between God and man and I like to think of the incarnation as the building of the bridge God and man but the ribbon cutting on the bridge is the crucifixion and the resurrection or, or we might uh, say the, the tearing of the veil so that you can cross the bridge through that 
Colossians 1, 15 through 20, then these are things that are written about this one. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. You know, it's one of the cultic groups that are mistaken. Uh, they say all other things were created through him because they try to portray him as a created being. No, he created all. There's nothing, you know, like John said, nothing that is made, uh, nothing that's been made was made apart from him. He's before all things. In him, all things consist or hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He reiterates somewhat in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, where he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, again, these are scriptures, no doubt, that you're very familiar with. In verse 5 of Philippians 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, many people may be unaware that this passage of the bowing of the knee, the confessing of the tongue, is found in Isaiah. Chapter 45, Uh, we'll begin in verse 18. It's not right there, but we want to see who this is that's being spoken of. He doesn't think it's robbery to be equal with God. And we're, you know, on Thursday nights, we're getting close to this section beginning in chapter 40 of Isaiah, where we'll see these amazing things that the Lord spoke through Isaiah. But in Isaiah 45, verse 18, he says, Thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's his name, God's name, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it. And we just read about somebody else who's the creator of all things. I mean, that's the same guy, not somebody else. Who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. 
Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge who carry their wood, the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. This is his desire. He's not ready to wipe them all out. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, for I'm God and there is no other. And then what does he say? I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. This is God, creator, Yahweh speaking, just as we read about in Philippians chapter 2. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. This is the one who does this. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. There's shame coming for those that reject the Lord. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He's spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Where it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, that name which is above all names. Now, of course, this is not exhaustive. You will find this, God become man, taught in what might be considered obscure passages or mentioned or implied in passing as though a truth taken for granted, needing no further proof. Why was the incarnation necessary? It was required for the furtherance of the campaign of God's plan of redemption. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, he says, You know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. We see this foreordination in the prophecies of the Old Testament, some of those which we read. We find a number of things in Scripture that are said to be from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, in the Greek grammar, the from the foundation of the world can either be about the book of life and the writing there or the Lamb being slain. So, in Matthew thirteen thirty three and 34, Jesus, or it says that all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables and without a parable he did not speak to them 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4.3 So we who have believed do not enter that for we who have believed do not enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. We do enter that rest. I don't know why I'm reading here. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So in these situations, these are things that were done from the foundation of the world. But Peter doesn't say from the foundation of the world. He says the plan was laid that is, Jesus' incarnation was foreordained before the foundation of the world. There are a couple other places where the phrase before the foundation of the world is used. John 17:24, when Jesus is praying, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is why God is love. He, he wasn't alone. He was in Trinitarian form before the beginning. And so there was love among the members of the Godhead. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So he says he chose us who believe in him before the foundation of the world. Now there are those who will interpret this individually and and say, well, God had to choose each individual before the foundation of the world. And so he had to not choose others. And so it's not even up to a person whether they're chosen or not. Well, there's no, it's, it's just all up to God. Zap, zap, zap. But I think it's better understood that he chose us in him before the foundation. God chose in the beginning, before the foundation of the world, he said, I'm going to take everybody who's in him. Everybody who believes in him. And isn't that what the New Testament teaches? Everybody who believes in my chosen one, I'm choosing them. So this plan of redemption was in place before the foundation of the world. God knew that man would fall and would need a savior. Some teach that God ordained the fall. Some teach that God ordains all things that have happen, even the most vile and evil actions of men. God does foreknow all things, and he foreordains and has foreordained many things. These things that are foreordained, he has planned and will carry out. But he did not and does not not foreordain the fall nor the evil that men do. He does not ordain all that happens. He has ordained all that is prophesied and all that pertains to the plan of redemption. And he even tells us about it ahead of the events so that we will know that it is God who is doing it. And this is back in Isaiah 48 again, verses 3 through 5. He says, I've declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. 
Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done this, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. And then back in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The incarnation is a necessity in the plan of God for mankind's salvation. But the incarnation in itself, God become human, is at the same time wholly inadequate for mankind's salvation. It is a wondrous and fascinating thing. It can be pondered for eternity without exhausting its wonder and amazement. We marvel at the things that are said about this one at his birth. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, While he thought about these things, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus means Jehovah is salvation, Yahweh is salvation. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. In Luke one seventeen, uh, the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah says, He will also, speaking of John the Baptist, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. (laughs) The Lord is coming, and your son is going to be preparing the way, a people, preparing a people for the Lord. And we know many of the disciples of John the Baptist, you know, they were prepared, and he pointed them to Jesus, and they followed Jesus. Luke 1, 30 through 35, the angel speaking to Mary, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary says, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 to the shepherds. The angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's Christ the Lord who is being born. Some people will try to say, well, he didn't become Christ until you know, later on after the resurrection or some other thing. No, he was Christ the Lord when he was born in the city of David. But the incarnation alone still leaves mankind lost in sin and separated from God forever. 
It is only it's only part of the plan of God. It's a necessary part, but only the beginning of the work of salvation. Jesus, the Lord from heaven, becomes a man and dwells among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel is necessary for the plan of salvation, but salvation requires more than Emmanuel. There are many who celebrated Christmas this past week who never celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They consider these things to be myth. And for many, even the virgin birth and the coming of Jesus are mere myths. To celebrate Christmas without faith in the rest of God's plan is vanity. Christmas is the most corrupted celebration on our calendars. Second is the resurrection with bunnies and eggs. The enemy has done all that he can to obscure the meaning of the incarnation, the wonder of God with us and what it is all about. We have the lights, the tinsel, the shopping, the big red elf, and the wonderful delicacies on our tables. All these things are intoxicating in some ways. I was full of wonder as a child at Christmas time, but I knew nothing of what the celebration really signified. Of course, it was about the gifts I was going to receive. The goodwill toward men that's spoken of is illusory apart from the grace of God toward sinners through the cross of Jesus. There's enough about the season that you can get the truth, but it is as if it's behind several layers of veil. It's up to those who know the whole truth to boldly proclaim the purpose behind the incarnation. It's necessity but also its inadequacy. There has been a concerted effort in our modern Christmas traditions to obscure the virgin-born Redeemer with glitter and shine. And some of it has been done unwittingly because they just don't get it, while with others it's been done for a definite purpose. It would have benefited man not at all should the Word have become flesh and dwelt among us and left man in his sinful state without remedy. The incarnation was necessary. The rest of the plan of redemption could not be accomplished apart from the incarnation, but it was not enough in itself. Consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul never wrote, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him incarnated, although he obviously believed and preached that Jesus very God of very God, came into the world hypostatically united with humanity, lived among men. uh, The hymn says he's pleased as man with man to dwell. He was actually more pleased than man with man to dwell. (laughs) But that alone was not his purpose in coming. He had a greater purpose in mind, and thank God that he did. He did not intend to leave his human creation made in his image and likeness to languish and perish in sin. The cradle was a necessary precursor to the cross and the cross to the grave and the grave to the resurrection from the dead, a new life for those who believe. The just by faith shall live, as we've studied in Galatians. I ran across another blog that, that's by Dr. David Allen, um, and it had some interesting things in it that I also would like to share, and then we'll be closing. 
He wrote, what was the purpose of that first Christmas in Bethlehem, incarnation? God became man, Emmanuel, God with us. And what was the purpose of that incarnation? Calvary. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. To what purpose that he should die for our sins? What love. Jesus could have come into the world as he did, as he did, looked around, kind of got the lay of the land, as they say, and said, eh, I don't think so. I mean, some of you are nice and all, but you don't understand what I'm facing. Time for plan B. But God had no plan B. He didn't need a plan B. He never needs a plan B. Plan A was perfected before the foundation of the world was laid. Hebrews 12:2 were exhorted to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy that motivated Jesus that was set before him. He had to see beyond the cross to see the joy, and of course he could. But his joy was you, speaking of us as a group. That was the joy of the Lord, bringing many sons to glory. If Jesus had only come into our, to our world but not to the cross, his birth would have been no less a miracle, but there would have been no benefit to you or me. The incarnation is not enough to save anyone. Christmas holds no power without the cross. Redemption from sin and the gift of eternal life requires the entire plan of redemption. And God has provided and completed that plan. His works are finished from the foundation of the world, awaiting those whosoever will come to him and receive the gift of eternal life. There's a couple other passages here from Titus that I posted this week as, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year stuff. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, To remind those who are in the body to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I mean, there's no superiority here. You know, We ourselves were once in that same position. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. That's Merry Christmas when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. 
He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Happy New Year. John Fawcett, this was cited by Dr. Allen as well. John Fawcett was an English Baptist preacher from the 18th century. He says he reminds us how I, I or we, he reminds us how we should strive to love Jesus more. This is a quote from John Fawcett. If such a savior, if such a savior is not precious to us, nothing can equal our ingratitude. He says, while still getting over my conviction at this statement, Fawcett has the audacity to inflict me again. And he writes, surely they who love him most have reason still to be grieved that they do not love him more and sing the wonders of redeeming love. Jesus is the Lord from heaven. Jesus became man and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who loves. Jesus is the one who gives. Jesus is the one who forgives. Jesus is the one who saves for all eternity. Jesus is the one who gives new life, life from the dead for those who believe. So come to Jesus. In John chapter 5, 38 through 40, Jesus says, you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It is not complicated. It's very simple so that it can be done by anyone who believes. That is coming to him so that you may have life forgiveness of sins, and eternal life with the God who loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son for you. There's a hymn written by George Crawley, The Spirit of God Descend Upon My Heart. It says, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from the earth through all its pulses move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art. And teach me to love thee as thine angels love. Teach me to love thee as thy angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. The baptism of the heavenly descended dove. My heart and altar. Thy love the flame. 